Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. At the time in 1995, the only God that I recognized was Rick. It's the only God I needed. I had no no desire, no need, no no was never compelled to pursue any interest in God. So I would have never identified him. But in the rearview mirror, I see him clearly as people that God put in my path. That is the voice of Rick Loftus sharing about the darkest time in his life, experiencing the homicide of his infant son, and how that event would send his life into a tailspin that only the power of God could bring to an end. Welcome to Life Support. Everything you do from then on is different. One of the detectives, I think his name was He was a golden boy. All we can do right now is come together. Extreme domestic violence, multiple rapes. The purpose of Life Support is to help others know how to come alongside those who are hurting and suffering. And hosted by Paul Johnson, lead pastor of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. In this series, Pastor Paul will be having conversations with trauma survivors. Pastor Paul is no stranger to personal tragedy himself, losing his first wife to cancer and then suffering through the homicide of his 21-year-old son, giving him a unique perspective and empathy as he conducts these conversations. Here is Pastor Paul Johnson. Very much excited to talk to a man who has an amazing story today. Rick Loftus. Rick, thank you so much for being here and offering uh, your story that will be, for many, an encouragement. For many, they'll be able to relate to what you've been through. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Your story is uh, really multidimensional. There's a lot of things going on there. And maybe the best thing to do would be to take us back to the very beginning I know you got married in 1994, and that's kind of where it all started, right? Yes. Yep. We got married in 1994, um, bought a house in South Minneapolis near Minnehaha Falls, and in 1995 we had our first uh, child in July of 1995. We named him Calvin DeForest Loftus, and a lot of times people would look at us and say, oh my, is that a great family name or something? We said, no, the first name was after the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons that were written in that time period, and uh, DeForest is Humphrey Bogart's middle name, so we wanted to have a lot of fun with, we plan on having a lot of kids, and so we started off by having fun with his name. And so most of the time when we start our families, we have this vision that everything is going to be the American dream, we're going to have all the kids we want, we're going to have a nice house, nice job, everything's going to go swimmingly well. And then we grow up and we get reality checks. Yeah, and you got a reality check pretty early. Yeah, we. Um, my wife was working for a company at the time. It was called Nextel. Um, we wouldn't even have recognized it back in 1995. And they wanted her to continue working. Our plan was to have her be a stay-at-home mom. I was in the restaurant business at the time. But uh, her company asked her to continue to work for about six months after Calvin was born. So we did our homework and found a um, daycare provider for him and uh, put him in to daycare in October of 1995. And uh, then uh, one morning, um, my wife called me and said that one of the kids at Joanne's daycare fell on Calvin, and they're taking him over to um, Children's Hospital. And when they, uh, so I was working out of my home that morning, and Mallory left her office, and I left, met her over at Children's Hospital. 
And at that point, did you have any indication that there was anything seriously wrong? No, it seemed like it was pretty innocuous. It just we were told that he was hurting, but he was over with children, so that's where we went. And so you headed over there, and when you got there, things changed considerably, right? Yes, they did. I uh, clearly recall standing in front of the, one of the ER bays at Children's Hospital in Minneapolis with my left arm around the daycare provider and my right arm around my wife. And it's kind of funny the things you remember in the midst of all that, but I clearly remember watching the doctor take one of the flashlights looking for a reaction from Calvin's pupils, and he didn't get one. Mm-hmm. Didn't get a reaction out of him. And at that moment, I realized now that I went into shock because I literally said, hang on one second. Uh, and the doctor wasn't doing anything unprofessional. He literally looked in his eyes and he panicked just for a millisecond. And I caught it and I knew the worst had happened. And I went into the bathroom and heaved my guts out and came back out mm-hmm. and began a 45-hour nightmare for us. And so here, here we are, and it's been a lot of years And it's still like it happened yesterday when you're telling the story. I mean, you get choked up. And one of the things that we want to deal with in life support is this idea that somehow these things go away or end or you move past them. No, that's. uh, I think anybody that's been through it knows that that's not true. It's just a matter of life changes. It becomes completely different, and you learn how to cope with it. But, yeah, I was under the mis... uh, the, the mistaken idea early on that, oh, time will heal and things will get better as, as time goes on, and that's not the case at all because mm-hmm. it's very, very, it's as painful today as it was then. Yeah. So here you are now at the hospital. You're putting two and two together. Mm-hmm. What happens next? Uh, we were, um, they, they took Calvin into uh, into the intensive, uh, the I think it was the the pediatric intensive care unit and suddenly there were doctors and nurses all around and it was me and my wife and her mother came down there pretty quickly a couple of friends came and we noticed after a while that joanne was no longer there um but uh, i was kind of funny joanne from the daycare the daycare the one that murdered my son yes um he uh he Calvin was laying on a, a bed with heat lamps and wires and plugs and all kinds of leads coming out of him. And I clearly remember the uh, one of the do- – and nobody had really told us what was going on at that point, just that he was in serious condition. We could see that there was no response. He was uh, – they had him on a breathing machine and everything. And finally, a, a doctor came in, and his name was Judd Rainey, um, like everybody's favorite uncle, you know, a little bit older than me wiring glasses, just uh, calm as can be. And he came in and he looked at Calvin's chart and he looked down at Calvin and I never saw a man get more angry in my life. And um, it was within a half an hour after that that we were told that um, Calvin's death was, the injuries were consistent with a shaken, uh, a severe shaking episode. And in 1995, shaken baby syndrome didn't exist. We weren't using that language. It hadn't been confirmed. And a lot of crib death was what it was called. So we, um, uh, one of the blessed nurses there gave me some eye drops that were filled with glycerin. It was the best thing that I ever had because we were so dried out. And we knew at that point that Calvin was gone, that he was dead. And the doctor was angry because of what had happened to Calvin. Because he knew. He knew from the, the tests and the reports and the exams that they had done and he, Judd Rainey, and our case and the Minneapolis coroner's office and the Hennepin County prosecutors did a lot with the National Center for um, Child Abuse 
to establish case law for what um, uh, shaken baby sy- syndrome consisted of. So that was one of the benefits that came out of his death. So what's going through your mind right now? Could you even put thoughts together? No. Just a blur? No. That's this uh, little cycle that started for me. Uh, if you're familiar with, sometimes when you go into a room and you go, oh, what did I come in here for? And you go, trace your steps back to the other room and you go, oh, that's right, I was going into the kitchen to get this. Um, I constantly walked into a room or went somewhere and I go, what did I come in here for? So I'd try to retrace my steps. And when I did that, I'd go, what did I come in here for? I was completely lost. And what happened at that point, because I just wanted to, I knew that we weren't going home with Calvin and I finally went to the doctor. Um, His name is William Wheeler, another angel sent for this whole situation. I just came up to him and I said, what's the deal? What are we going to do? What? I know he's dead. I know he's not coming home with us. And Dr. Wheeler's exact words, he goes, at some point we're going to ask you about organ donation. And I go, oh, never thought of that. Poked my head into the door where my wife was sitting with her mother. And I said, they want to know if we're willing to donate Calvin's organs. And she goes, yeah, of course. And um, so I went to Dr. Wheeler and I said, yeah, we'd love to do that. And it seemed like it was five minutes later. I'm sure it was a little longer than that. The team from Life Source in Minnesota uh, came in, and we met a couple of a couple more angels, and they just walked us through the whole process of what would happen. I'm sure they had to go through their process to confirm that he was brain dead and what they would do for harvesting the organs and everything. And and just that information that they kept giving us in a very clinical sense kind of helped me to regain a little bit of an equilibrium, um, and that helped get through the end of it. But even during this shocking period of this moment, God was sending people into your life that you probably at the time, of course, couldn't really see that. No, but not at all. But as you look back now, the way you describe these various mm-hmm. people that were kind of dropped into the situation mm-hmm. were obviously God at work. Yeah. And, and at the time in 1995, the only God that I recognized was Rick. It's the only God I needed. I had no, no desire, no need, no no was never compelled to pursue any interest in God, so I would have never identified him. But in the rearview mirror, I see him clearly as people that God put in my path. Hmm. So you're going to go home from the hospital now. Yep. Your life's never going to be the same. Yep. How did you cope with that? Um, we were leaving Children's Hospital, my wife and I. I was speechless. I was dumbfounded. And my wife looked at me as we were heading through the skyway to the parking ramp, and she goes, I want to have more kids. And I'm thinking, you're way farther down the road than I am. So went home, uh, had a bunch of friends come over that first night, and I don't think that I slept that entire two days over there at uh, Children's Hospital because I remember waking up on the couch in the living room and everybody was gone, and we uh, proceeded to try to start putting our lives back together. At that point, were you on the same page at that point when you began to put your lives back together? My wife and I, absolutely not. We were two boats cut adrift in a difference in different seas. We, um, the prospect of um, seeking professional help or all the things that I know that survivors of this type of a trauma go through, never even occurred to us. And even if they had, if someone had suggested us suggested it. I was too bullheaded and too thought I was too smart about everything, thought I could deal with it on my own, uh, thought I could cope with it myself. Did you think you were coping with it at yeah, that point? I thought I was doing fine. I went to, back to work about two, three weeks later and continued my career in the restaurant business. Um, 
the marriage uh, seemed to be doing okay. We had three more wonderful children over the next seven years, and we just began living our lives. We'll return to this conversation in just a moment, but we want to remind you that you are listening to Life Support, a co-production of Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and Five Stone Media. Here is Five Stone Media Executive Director and Co-Founder, Steve Johnson. Thank you, Veronica. Five Stone Media is an organization that uses story to bring hope and healing for those in need of change. We're videotaping these programs, and the video version of Life Support can be found on the Facebook page of Five Stone Media and also our website at fivestonemedia.com. And now let's return to the conversation of hope with Pastor Paul Johnson. But at this point, God wasn't really a part of the equation for you. God was not anywhere near. We had thousands of books in our home, Paul, and there was I'm pretty sure there wasn't a single Bible um, anywhere among them. Her parents um, belonged to a... I believe a congregational church in in Richfield, and we occasionally went there. It's where we had the service memorial service for Calvin, little 200-person church that had 500 people show up for this because had people I knew everybody in the restaurant business in the Twin Cities, and a lot of them came there. And she had a very extensive, pretty very solid family, and so there were a lot of people there at the memorial service. But as far as any affiliation with church or any relationship with God, it was non-existent for both of us. So as you grew up, was that a part of your upbringing, or was God just a foreign concept to you as you made your way forward? Uh, when I was a young child, next to nothing, my my biggest, my clearest memory of God was as a teenager. Um, I w- was raised by a single mom with five, four siblings, and she decided when we were kind of in that late grade school, uh, junior high. Uh, age range that we joined a Lutheran church in North Minneapolis and went through, I believe they were called confirmation classes. And the pastor found out that we were in confirmation classes, but we had actually never been baptized because church had never, God had never been a part of our lives, but my mom was making an effort. So um, he decided that he was going to baptize all five of us. And I remember walking down the aisle in that Lutheran church up to the baptismal font and feeling like all the people in that church were looking at me like, shame on you for not being baptized. Hmm. I'm sure that now, looking back, that was in my own head. I'm sure the congregation was nothing but kind and loving and happy to have us there. But that's the way I remembered it. And I, from the teachings and the education I got through that course of it, I perceived God as being the angry uh, step one you know, foot out of the path, and I'll throw angry thunderbolts at you. So I, it, I realize now it just pretty much gave me an excuse to, again, walk away from God or not develop any relationship with him at all. So now you're facing the most difficult moment of your life. Did that anger resurface? Um, no, it was, I repressed it. The um, I remember um, treating it as an opportunity to be further, more angry at God. Um, my mother-in-law finally talked me into going to see the pastor at the church that they belonged to. His name was Doug kindest, gentlest, lovingest man. All pastors are. (laughs) Just Just goes with the territory. And I'm pretty sure that just if I can uh, interject my own thoughts on this, I'm pretty sure when he got the call from me, he he probably was scared to death. Because I sat down with him and explained to him what was going on and 
just and I had known Doug. I thanked him for the service, the wonderful service he conducted for Calvin's memorial. And when I sat down to talk about him, talk about it, uh, the, all of my questions were why questions. Why, 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 why? Just trying to understand in my own earthly, worldly, fleshly way, well, how could this possibly happen? Have I done something wrong? Is there something in me? Or, and I remember that Doug's answer that he came up with was, well, God did give us free will. And it was the most inadequate. I think I was rude to him. I think I said, probably hurled some excellence <laughs> and got up and walked out of his office. And mm-hmm. thinking about what I've learned since then, um, chances are very good the poor man was not equipped to deal with something like that. Mm-hmm. Found out later it was the first time anybody in his congregation had ever had a child murdered, and he just didn't know what to say. And he gave it his, gave it his best shot. He was very loving, very kind, and I was very angry and very mean to him. When we tell people our story, whether it be people at school or people at other churches, even doctors, they kind of stare at us like, we're going to refer you really quickly because we have no idea how to deal yeah. with this. It's so far out of the norm. Yeah. Just saying the word murder yeah. is a, is shocking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, I think back to those professionals that you're talking about. Um, we did a lot of volunteer work for Life Source after um, we donated Calvin's organs. And he saved the lives of six people, <laughs> six little babies. Got the great phone call. And the first responders and the doctors and the nurses that work with people that are potential recipients are scared to death to approach potential donor families because they feel like vultures are going, hey, your kid's dead. Can we have his organs? We could save some lives. And the simple words that Dr. Wheeler used, I've never forgotten, at some point we were going to ask you about organ donation. Couldn't be any more innocuous, couldn't be any less offensive. And you decide pretty quickly in those scenarios. And the number of first-line care providers that we've told that story to, they go, oh, that's what I have to say. So we know that that helped tremendously with those situations. Our guest is Rick Loftus, who's telling an amazing story here on life support. And we're here to help you learn how to help people and to also find hope and trauma through Christ. So you are a non-believer trying to make sense of all of this. What was the process like for you as you left that pastor's office and you tried to put two and two together? Mm-hmm. There's a, I hope this is a, an appropriate time to put this comment in because it, was, it happened in 1995 and it wasn't until 2017, so we're talking 22 years later, when I was helping a small nonprofit that, I, that a friend was starting, and I was looking at her business plan and reading everything what it was about. And this is another, you know, Jesus touching my heart. As I was reading through her plan, so much of it was focused on trauma and just the way she had worded it. And it wasn't until that moment that it occurred to me that what had happened with Calvin was trauma, that I had been through trauma. I had had... Plenty of people in the ensuing 22 years prior to that point sitting at that desk looking over that business plan saying, you've been traumatized, you're in trauma. And I, and just being who I was, I said, no, I'm not. Because in my mind, trauma was what the guy sitting in the ditch in war looking at his head, friend's head blown off yeah, or sure. you know, their leg is broken off and physical trauma or stuff like that. I did not agree and I vehemently denied that what I had been through was trauma. 
So I wasn't even recognizing the problem. So there was no way I was going to get to any type of a solution. So that, if, if that had been introduced to me, and if the right person had realized that I was denying this, they would have gone to work on that to help me get over the point. So 22 years later, I finally realized it, and I very freely and easily used that term now with no shame because I didn't want to... I didn't want to exhibit any weakness or anything like that. What were they noticing in you that led them to that conclusion? Anger. There was repressed anger where I and and I I I thought that I was successfully repressing it and my wife would say these things to me. Um but to go back to your question the the um we began living our lives. We had a new child, we had a girl, a boy and another girl over the course of the next 7 years. Um, I was transitioned from a successful restaurant to a career to a successful um, executive search firm. I began the recruiting business, started my own business, and started, make, started making tons of money and very successful material. We had kids that were growing up. We had a house. We bought a lake home, had other properties, accumulating money, and everything the material world was telling me, you're okay, you're successful, everything's going well. And this continued on for many, many, many years until 2006, almost 21 years after the fact. Wow. And it took people to help you to understand where you really were. Um, not at that point, no. Not I'm ready still, yet? Nope, not ready yet, because 2000, shall we go, go on with the next step of the story? Yeah, you fire away. This is a, a fascinating and difficult story, and I appreciate you yeah, telling it. Thank you very much, Paul. I, I appreciate you moderating and guiding me through this. Um, 2006... Um, uh, I got bored with making the amount of money that I was. It's the only way I can, it's almost ridiculous to say that, but it, I realize now that that's what had happened. Very successful, very networked, very relied upon by my clients. Got repeat clients doing the job very, very well in the recruiting business. Felt bored, got introduced to um, the foreign currency exchange business and decided that I wanted to become a day trader in the foreign currency business. and. This is the type of market, um, if, if stocks, if, if a risk scale is 1 to 10, 1 the lowest risk, 10 the highest risk, and stocks are a 1 in options and futures are a 7, um, foreign currency trading is 126. It's, it's, it's done by federal trade or federal banks and countries and sheiks and Arab uh, countries and everything, and I decided that I was going to put an extensive amount of money into this, uh, bought a bunch of software, did the practicing. Uh, worst thing and the best thing that happened to me is the first week when I was active trading, I made $43,000. And I proceeded to, at that point, I, I became a heavily addicted gambler. There's no, every book that I ever read about foreign currency trading said that uh, if you have any addictive qualities, if you've ever been involved in addiction, don't do this because mm. it's not day trading, it's not foreign currency trading, it's gambling. It's kind of like, you know, you go to the blackjack table for your first time and you win 100 bucks and you think, this is easy. I'm going back. Yeah. And I had been my business. Not that I've ever done that, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's all theoretical. Uh, of course, of course, all hypothetical. And I, so long story short, I became very addicted to the gambling in the foreign currency world. And uh, I was also drinking heavily at that time. But if you had told me, I barely knew what Alcoholics Anonymous was. I uh, regularly went to my annual physical and were the questions where they asked me, do you drink more than six drinks or beers per week? I would actively lie on that, knowing that I was drinking sometimes six cases a week or beyond that. 
had a refrigerator in my garage that would hold up to eight cases of beer and one in the basement that would hold two, and I drank heavily, never thought of it. And the combination of my gambling, when I'd lose or win and I'd get either depressed or euphoric, my answer was to drink, to level it out. We're going to spend some time together next time, and I want to pick that up where we left off because this is also a, a helpful part of your story, as hurtful as it is to talk about Rick Loftus. You know, as we look at suffering and trauma, you may be going through some of these very same things that you're hearing about right now. And the Bible is clear that there is hope. God is good. He's full of grace. In 1 Peter 5.10, the word says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So eternal glory awaits you, and and you can remember that suffering is but for a season, and it's for a reason. God never randomly afflicts you. It's always for his good and your good, but it's so hard to see that at the time. But let me just encourage you that God loves you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. We're so thankful for our partners, Faith Radio and Five Stone Media, I'm the lead pastor at Ridgewood Church. If you'd like to check in, you can just go on myridgewood.org slash life support to find out more about our program. I'd love to have you follow me on Twitter at Pastor Paul J. And you can see a video presentation of this podcast at fivestonemedia.com. So there's plenty of ways to stick with us. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for being here in Life Support. We're going to have to hold those thoughts, but join us next time for part two of the conversation with Pastor Paul and Rick Loftus. For a video version of this program, log on to the Five Stone Media Facebook page or fivestonemedia.com. This program is a co-production of Five Stone Media and Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Thanks for listening to this Life Support Podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.